All right. We're, uh, we're going to talk about money today, which is kind of intimidating because guys don't like to talk about their money. Uh, but we're going to talk about it anyway and some scriptural principles to go by. <clears throat> First, why in the world uh, do you have Kraft up here talking to you about money? Well, um, I'm not a financial expert, I will tell you that. There's plenty of financial experts here in the room. Uh, and I guess I go by the kind of the school of hard knocks. Um, I deal with a lot of financial issues in criminal court every day because uh, I have people that steal other people's money. Uh, uh, we have uh, very poor people who will never have money problems because they'll never have any money, and they're stealing rich people's money. We have rich people who have a lot of problems because they have a lot of money, but they don't know what to do with it. And so they're uh, giving it to the poor people to exchange for drugs and other substances. Um, but uh, I, I, this all kind of dates back how I kind of got started in the financial area. And, I, and here again, I am not a, uh, a uh, professional financial person at all. But uh, what happened to me was I learned from the school of hard knocks because like so many of y'all, I was young and trying to figure out what I was going to do with my life and, and worrying about stuff. I was farming in Arkansas. I used to tell people I was outstanding in my field <clears throat> when I was farming. <laughs> and... Uh, uh, all of a sudden, uh, the financial hard times came, and beans went below $6, and interest rates were 12 and 13%. Those of y'all that remember back in the, uh, in the early 70s. And here we were farming and borrowing a lot of money, and, and it wouldn't rain, and the crops wouldn't grow, and there was a lot of financial pressure. And my father owned the farm, and I was farming it, about 3,000 acres over in Proctor, Arkansas, which is where I grew up, which is the gateway to Lehigh, we call Proctor. Um, <laughs> And so we were working in Proctor, and my father, because he had to borrow so much money every year, and we would literally borrow huge sums of money, and then we'd have a crop and we'd pay it back and hopefully have money to live on during the year, and then sometimes we'd make a whole lot of money, but you're going to pay a lot of taxes on it, so what you did was you spent it on implements or tractors or combines or something to keep from having a tax bite, and then you would, uh, uh, if you didn't have any money, then you'd need income to put it against a loss and you know and there was just a financial stress in the farming uh, and of course when my brother and sister graduated they left they gra graduated from college and they left home and never darkened the family farm again and I went back there uh, I told my dad I would never do what he did I was the rebellious kid growing up and I ended up being the rebellious kid that actually did what his dad said whereas my brother always said did what my father said and as soon as he could he left and went to New York City <clears throat> uh, but we were struggling with the farm, and, and I got married and moved out there, and I married a girl that uh, had never lived in a city of less than a million people. She was born in uh, San Fernando Valley in California, and then grew up in uh, uh, Cleveland, Ohio, and then uh, Chicago, and then moved to Seattle, and then she married me, and she moved to Proctor. Uh, <laughs> We would have people, some of my help, we had about 110 employees on the farm, and they were all very poor. None of them had ever made it through sixth grade. This was back in the 70s. And, and uh, they'd come to the back door and, well, Miss Susie, and they'd start asking her stuff, and she couldn't understand what they were saying. And she'd have to come and say, Chris, I can't understand what these people are telling me in her Yankee accent. Um, and went to the post office. She was very unhappy on the farm, let's say. She went to the post office once, and they said, well, Miss Kraft, get out of here. And so she left. She, she, she thought 
get out of here meant to leave. She didn't understand farming. It's a true story. So our address was one mile west of the Proctor Post Office at the railroad track. That was our address. Well, she was, she was unhappy, and she was miserable, and if, if Mama's not happy, ain't nobody happy. And so, uh, and my father, uh, the pressure, the financial pressure was just getting to him. So uh, we decided to move and leave the farm and rent it out to some uh, farmers. And, of course, that all that money went uh, to my dad and my mom, and I was out of a job. Uh, I remember we had a gas pump, our own gas pump in our backyard, 16 cents a gallon in the 70s because there was no, it was, it was, our cars were farm implements. There was no tax or anything on that. That was the only thing we hated, leaving the farm. We moved to Memphis. I worked construction. Uh, operated a jackhammer for a year while I was trying to get into law school. Susie then got a job at Mid-America Baptist Seminary as the librarian, working me through school. And, I, and then after we got out of school, I was going to work her through all our children. She wanted to be a stay-at-home mom. And she was going to work me uh, after law school. And then she was going to go to law school after 20 years. That was our 20-year plan, which we actually achieved. It took us 20 years, but we actually achieved it. But during this time, uh, we, we had money problems, and it wasn't because we were spending a whole lot of money, because we weren't, but we started having children, and we were a one-income family, and in the early 80s, the world said, you know, women can go to work, and we can tap that extra income now, and we can get them to qualify for homes that they can pay for if the woman's at work. And we saw all of our friends buying these huge houses that they could not afford because their parents were co-signing for them. And they were getting these balloon notes. You can't get a note like this anymore. But they were loaning them 110% on their home. And uh, it was all due in five years, balloon note, at a fairly low interest rate. But that interest was, at, was and in fact, the payments that we were making on the home didn't even make the interest. And, and everybody was doing this. And they were getting their parents to co-sign it because their parents lived in a certain level. So why wouldn't they? So Susie and I were going through that same thing. And... Um, we had completely different lifestyles. When I grew up, if I needed some money, I just asked my mom or dad, I need $20. They just give me $20. My wife, on the other hand, grew up in a home where her father was a contractor, an electrician, and they would move to a city, and uh, a large city, not, never less than a million people, and he'd buy a house that hadn't been framed up quite yet. It'd been, well, it had a roof on it, but it hadn't been finished on the inside. He'd finish it himself and do all that while he was working for the electrician's union and stuff. And so they always had less money than everybody else in their neighborhood. They were always a little poorer because everybody else bought their homes and they bought a home and kind of finished it out and did a lot of work themselves. She never had the same clothes the other girls at her school had. She always felt kind of poor, you know, just a little disadvantaged. There were clothes apparently called villager clothes back then that Susie couldn't have, everybody else could have. So when we had our children, she knew, by God, they're going to have great clothes. They're going to have little alligators. They're going to have smocking. They're going to have all this stuff, okay? We couldn't have curtains. We had to have window treatments. Now, I don't really know the difference, but window treatments are about three or four times what curtains cost. <clears throat> At the same time, I had graduated from law school, and I was in private practice, and all my friends were running and gunning, and they were getting these big cars, and they were spending money on these personal injury cases, and they were living a lifestyle totally on credit totally borrowed because they had to impress the partners because in seven years come they want to be the partner in the firm and spend all this and do all that and all of us were broke I mean we looked like we had money but we owed more than we had and uh, 
I just, well, I just said, well, that's just the way the world does. Until I started looking at the Bible and what it said about Scripture, and I started feeling a little bad. And uh, creditors were calling it. Sears would call and say, well, uh, Miss Kraft, because she was at home with the kids and I was worried, says, did y'all forget to pay your Sears bill this month? She says, well, I don't know. I'll ask my husband. Well, I didn't want to look at the finances. I, got to, I didn't want to look at them because if you don't look at it, you don't see it. And so we would just avoid that because everybody was doing it, honey, and, you know, all that. Until she had to have major surgery, and when she had to have major surgery, her mother, Barbara, from Seattle, came to live with us for a couple of weeks. Now, one of the reasons I married my wife is I liked her parents okay, but I, married, I knew her parents lived far away. That was one of the advantages. And she, she knows that, and I told her parents that. They then, later on, they retired and moved to uh, Tennessee, uh, so I got to know them really well. But her mother was in town, and, and I was, for two weeks, and I was trying to kind of not really avoid her, but just not get in her way. So I said, well, I know what I'll do. I'll pay the bills. So I got the bills out and the checkbook that my wife kept because I just didn't really want to be, you know, I didn't know what to do about all that, so I was avoiding it. And I opened a, a Sears bill or Tallheimer's or something, whatever it was back then, and I saw it was like $800, $900 bill, and this was September. And I said, you know, this is great. Susie has already bought Christmas already before she had surgery because there were a lot of Christmas stuff things on there. And so I talked to her about it after her surgery, and she was in bedridden for a few days. And she said, well, honey, no, that was last Christmas. We'd just been carrying this every month. And, and I went back and looked at all the other stuff. The bills were just getting a little higher every month. We just, you know, the credit card balance is a little higher. Well, I was, basically I was convicted because I realized that um, I just had not been taking a leadership role in the family and Susie was unhappy. She never, she always needed money for clothes, never had enough money for clothes. And I mean, we weren't poor, we weren't homeless, she wasn't wearing sacks or anything. But, and, and she would spend a lot of her money on the children's clothes. And, and we had all this money in this house that we bought that we really didn't qualify for, but the banks don't care because my mom and dad had co-signed on the note. And so they didn't really care. The banks don't care if they foreclose your house if they know they can get their money back. They just don't. Now, any of you that works for banks, that's fine. My wife is attorney for a bank, SunTrust, so I'm not saying anything that she doesn't know and probably wouldn't agree with, that banks, until this last year, would loan money to anybody that, that had somebody with a job that would sign the note because they don't really care about you. They just care about the fees that it generates and the stock options that are when those options vest in January and all that kind of stuff. So, so just basically heathen banks, they're in business to make money, not to help people. Now, when you look on the commercials on TV, they say, oh, here's this home, and they lead them, hold their hands and lead them into their home. No, they just care about the money. They care about the option price every day. So, and that's the way it should be, I guess, because they're in business to make money. I would not want to have own stock in a bank that was all touchy-feely and wanting to help people. I, I mean, because the dividend would probably go down a little. Not the spiritual dividend, but the financial dividend. So that's where we were. So I went to a course taught by a guy named Randy Tomlinson, who wasn't from this church, but he taught it in this church on biblical financial precepts and, and principles. And I was shocked that so much about money was in the Bible. And I started reading books by a guy named Larry Burkett, who's dead now, but he has a group called Christian Financial Concepts. And I was reading these books about these scriptural principles, and I, I discovered Jesus talked about money more than any other topic. You would think that Jesus talked about salvation. No, he talked about money. He talked about gold coins. He talked about talents. He talked about herds and flocks and, and businesses and how people related their lives to their livelihood. Uh, 
He also talked a lot about agriculture, about commodities, those of y'all that uh, deal with commodities. He talked about a lot of this stuff, and I just had glossed over that because I didn't think that applied to me. Well, I was so convicted by the course that we had to have a financial plan. So I sat down with my wife, and my children were age two and five. And my, I remember I had been avoiding talking to her about it because I knew we had disagreements. We had different priorities. Guys and girls have different priorities. When you married your wife, you married her parents and how she was raised. And I was a divorce attorney at the time, and I was doing a lot of marriage counseling, and here I was afraid to talk to my wife about money. So we started talking in the kitchen, and my little girl came in. She was three, and she said, Daddy, why are you all talking so loud at each other? But we hashed it out, and after that day, and that's been 25 years ago, we have never had a single disagreement about finances. And it removed a huge stress from our marriage. I was so impressed by that that I started talking to my divorce clients. And one of the reasons I became a lawyer is because Christian lawyers never really dealt with divorce or crime. Because, you know, they, you know Christian things and other things. But you know, they don't go into divorce law. They don't go into criminal law. It's not really a Christian kind of thing. Now, we have some neat lawyers now that, that do that. But I was getting all the divorces from Bellevue and First Evan, Christ Methodist, uh, Mississippi Boulevard. They were, they were all sitting there. There's a Christian divorce lawyer. And I was getting all these people. And they were just, uh, they loved each other, they said, when they got married. And now they don't love each other anymore. And they were Christians. I mean, they were going to Bible-believing churches. And they were Christians, but they could not get along. I had a couple that had been married 48 years and wanted a divorce because of irreconcilable differences. And I said, what kind of differences can't you reconcile after 48? And the, that divorce provision says you can't get a divorce unless you reconcile all your differences and have your property settlement and everything. And I had, and I, but I did not get people divorced except for adultery. And I talked to one couple, and I said, well, you know, I can't get to your divorce. Uh, there's no adultery. You know, I'll be glad to work with you all and counsel with you all. And he said, well, I'll take care of that this weekend. He did. That's how, that's how bitter, that's how bitter and violent, that's how emotionally violent some of these Christian marriages got. They got so emotional. And so I said, I'm pulling out of this. I'm pulling out of this. And I went and got a job with the government and took a 60% pay cut for the first three years to do that. Had to start throwing papers to make ends meet. I threw 600 papers every morning from 3 to 5.30. And people would call to get $600 a month, the extra, because I said, I'm not going to get into debt. We're going we're to get, I'm convinced Scripture says we're going to do it. Uh, I'm going to stay home with my kids when I need to. I'm not going to make get making money our priority. And it was hard to make those decisions because it's very tempting. But uh, during that time, throwing those papers every morning, and people would call and say, is little Chris home? I need to pay him the paper. I said, no, but I'll go by and I'll collect for him, you know, and I'd go by and get the money. They didn't know that I wasn't my son. Uh, and I listened to Jay Vernon McGee at 4.30 in the morning on 6.40 and, and all these, you know, and I grew spiritually during all that time. Because I decided we were, gonna not, we were not gonna spend more money than we made, it changed my life so much that I went to Georgia with my wife and the two of us got trained to be financial counselors by Larry Burkett before he died. Uh, and then finance, Christian Financial Concepts then became part of Crown Ministries. So I'm not a financial professional counselor but what I've done is I've met a lot of people in their kitchens and talked to them about their finances and what's going on about them. And that's my only, the school of hard knocks is my only thing. And I didn't even hear talk about finances, uh, not, not about myself. And I'm not about to tell you how you're to spend your money. But I want to go over with you some basic principles 
that, as Sandy says, said a couple weeks ago, these are guidelines to go by. And if you find yourself not following these guidelines, let alarm bells go off in your brains because if the Lord had not gotten my attention, and I see all the other people in my graduating class, some of them are on their third or fourth marriage, some of them are, have been in motorcycle accidents drunk, some of them have gone off the deep end because of the principles that the Bible says and, and these other people's love of money or what other lawyers and other people thought of them and their ability to make money. They just lost their priority and lost their way. Not only people that aren't believers, but people that were believers that just lost their way. And so what we're trying to do today is just give you some scriptures and principles. And, and I'm going to put these on the screen because we're going to be jumping around. We're not going to read one long passage. We're going to be jumping around. You probably can't turn to all these. It's in uh, NIV, but I'm just going to put them on the board so that you can see just part. And, and these are just a few of the things that scripture says, particularly Proverbs we're going to focus on. Sandy's going to get to Ecclesiastes. I have a couple of verses I threw in here from Ecclesiastes. But, but you know, and, and as far as career choices, if you're reading Ecclesiastes about your job, your satisfaction with what you do with your income, uh, you'll start getting all kinds of insights as you work into that. So starting out, uh, biblical principles about money and possessions. Okay, I've got um, eight considerations about how accumulating wealth. Now, God does not want us to be poor because we can't make money. Some of us, as Jesus voluntarily became poor for us, but that doesn't mean because we're Christians that we're supposed to gaze at our belly buttons and, and pour ashes on our heads all the time. That's not a good witness to the world. There are several people that I know that are extremely wealthy, and they know that they're just stewards of it for God, and they live in great houses, and they have great cars, and that's great. And, and I say, Lord, I wish you'd bless me as well with that much money, uh, but a lot of times, some of the, there are so much temptations that come with money, sometimes it's hard to handle it. So sometimes we wish for something, and we need to be really careful if we get it. Also, I've got 12 financial danger signs in marriage. Now, some of y'all aren't married. Some of you have been through a marriage. Some of you are still married. Some of you are going to become married. In any event, you can use these danger signs in your own life and also to counsel and give your friends advice who are going through these things. First, the eight considerations. First, we have to decide, should we follow God's plan for our finances or should we seek after the financial goals that the world values? Now, can we do this? Here's the problem. A lot of you <clears throat> with money or with hopes of money or with a lot of things and a lot of debt think, well, I know Kraft is going to start telling us, yeah, you know, let's just give it all to God. He owns it all. Let's not give 10%, let's give 20%, and the Lord will bless you, and you won't have to worry. And it's just this kind of like this, you know, everything's going to pie in the sky, everything's going to be all right. But you don't really understand because you've not been there. Uh, you don't really understand what it means when I go to the club and I talk to my friends, and yeah, my, I got these puts, and we did this, and I made so much money in five minutes. And the, the, the self-esteem you get, the look in those people's eyes, and all that, and, and the running and gunning you get from doing that, and, and that's okay. It's like going, that's why people go to the casino, and I deal with a lot of gambling. I was the intake, felony intake for the DUI, I mean for the DA's office, for DUIs, uh, multiple DUIs, and, and embezzlements and things, and when Splash Casino opened, the first year after they opened, embezzlements went up 800% in Shelby County after the first year. And that running and gunning felt really good, but it didn't last very long for those people. We're still dealing with people. Uh, we have some, uh, a lady, uh, the, uh, the uh, secretary for a CEO of a bank, 
embezzled hundreds of thousands of dollars right from under his nose. And when, when we asked her what she spent it on, she said makeup. You know, she just didn't really know where it went. And uh, all these things that we want to do and, and, and our self-esteem comes from the things we own and the stories that we can tell everybody else. And we all sit around, we swap war stories, and we're all half lies. It's like, boy, the fish that got away, you know, and we should not live our lives that way. So you might kind of sneer at that. Well, let's follow God's plan or the financial goals of the world values because you want to impress the world and your friends. And I understand that. I've, I'm a human too. But we need to understand the story that Jesus told to the Pharisees. Pharisees were rich, young rulers who loved money and loved what the people thought of them. And so Jesus started making his point by talking to them about money in Mark. And he said this, Whoever can be trusted with very little... I mean, Luke, this is Luke, I'm sorry, Luke 16. Whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. And this is in your, your handout. So if you haven't been trustworthy in handing worldly wealth... Who will trust you with true riches? You can't serve God and money. Now, a few things about this so far. If you're trusted with little, if you have a little now, and you're trustworthy with it, soon you will be trusted with much. Why should God give you more blessings when you're not dealing with what you have so far in the right way? Let's say that you are a, there's this show about the millionaire that, when I was a little kid, this guy that would go and give a million dollars every day to somebody and what happened to them in their lives. And you have to give a million dollars to somebody. Are you going to give it to somebody that you know is just going to borrow more money from it? Or are you going to give it to somebody that's going to use it wisely? You would give it to the wise person. And God is the same way. So right now, if you don't have enough, and, you know, who does? They asked Jay Rock, uh, the Rockefeller in the, uh, not Jay, but the Rockefeller from the railroad days, how much money he wanted, he said, just a little bit more. <laughs> That's what he said. I asked Adolf Hitler, you know, how much of the world do you want? He says, I just want the land next to mine. You know, there's never enough wherever you are. If you make a lot of money so that you're dealing with really high rollers, then there are always people in that group that make more than you, and they have yachts. And you'll always want to be in the yacht group. And when you get in the yacht group, uh, yeah, you know, they'll say, but there'll always be someone in that group that's got yachts, and he's got, you know, a place on the Riviera. There's always, wherever you are, there's always somebody that makes more than you, somebody that makes less, and you're always going to want to make more. It's like in our Sunday school classes. We look, and people that join a Sunday school class always join a class that's a little younger than they are. And so every three years, a Sunday school class gets five years older because people that join are a little older because you want to be there with people a little younger so you can think that way. Rich people the same way, people that want to gain money. So, uh, you have a little now, if you want more in the right way with God's blessing, you need to act really trustworthy with what you have now and say, Lord, I'm being trustworthy. I'm being a good steward. Trust me with more of your money, not give me more money to spend on me. And then it also says, he says, if, that we have worldly wealth and we also have true riches. So worldly wealth is fine. I'm not going to turn it down. If somebody gave me a winning lottery ticket today, I would cash it in. But there are true riches above what money is. Just don't realize that money is not the end all of everything. It says you can't serve both God and money. Now, it's very important. Jesus did not say you can't serve God and have money. He didn't say you can't have God and also money. It's not an either or. God, be a, be a spiritual Christian or have money. Those aren't mutually exclusive. What he says is, is you can't serve them both. 
you can't be God's servant and also money's servant. You can't do that. And then here's the Pharisees' reaction. The Pharisees, who loved money, heard all this and were sneering at Jesus. So when you hear about people talk about money and God's principles, if you find yourself, and I, I have before, I used to before, you know, the pastor say, oh, you need to do this, you need to do that, money, and I'd sneer because, yeah, but pastor, you don't, you know, you don't understand. I'm supposed to run and gun. I'm, I've got in private practice, and I've got to impress these people at circuit court and in the bar meetings, and I've got to do this, that, and the other. And it was kind of a sneer. It's like, you don't understand. This is little religious stuff, but here I am as a financial guy. I'm going to run and gun. You've got to understand that the Pharisees had the same attitude. What does Jesus know? What does he have? He's homeless. What does he know about this? And here's what Jesus responded to their sneers. He said, you're the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of men. So for those of us that are earning money just so the neighbors will think we're neat or our people at work will think we're really movers and shakers or our wives will really love us because we made so much money, that's a false premise. You should not be working for that. He said, you're the ones that justify yourselves in the eyes of men, but God knows your hearts. What is highly valued among men is detestable in God's sight. That sneering attitude, that attitude, boy, wait till the guys see this new car I have. Wait till I talk to them about the hunting trip that I just took, this vacation. Because you want to impress men and look good in their eyes. If that's why you're making this money, if you're thinking, I'm going to take this job and it means a lot more work and I know my kids need me, but think of the money we can make. You need to really think seriously about that decision, about whether or not you're trying to impress the world and its values or whether or not you're trying to be a good steward for Jesus. Secondly, second principle, consideration, image is not everything. I was so disappointed in Andre Agassi. I thought he was a great tennis player, and I heard he was a Christian and everything like that. I also heard Dean Martin was a Christian. I said, well, you know, how did these rumors get started? I said, Andre Agassi was a Christian and all this, and, and then he started coming out with these Nike's commercials, and image is everything. I mean, it's just completely untrue. Image is nothing. It's actual substance. So image is not everything. And so if you're doing all this for an image... Are you going to pay a huge car note so you can show off to the guys at the office to try to make partner? I would think that's probably not the right thing to do scripturally. Proverbs 13, 7. One man pretends to be rich, yet has nothing. Another pretends to be poor, yet has great wealth. Which person should you try to be? There are so many people that I meet with, and I'll meet with them in their kitchen, and they have a huge house, and brand new cars, and they got no furniture. You know, I'll meet with people that are just working hard and stressed out and making all this money, and their kids are in juvenile court. You know, what price are we going to pay for other people's praise? So it's better to have money and not spend it, because you can always spend it, than to spend money that you don't have, and then when the Lord gives you the money that you need, you're going to have to pay back the bank. It's just such a false thing for us to try to do. But once we understand the true meaning of money and wealth, and we, can, and we have our plan and we pray and say, Lord, this is good. This is what we think will please you. Show us. Bless us. Bless our plan. Better to be a nobody and yet have a servant, Proverbs 12, 9, than pretend to be somebody and not have any food. So image is absolutely not everything. And Jesus knew that. 
and the Pharisees were all about image. And when Jesus said, look, I don't have a place to lay my head. Foxes have holes and I don't. They sneered at him because he, he wasn't running and gunning. He didn't have the stuff that they had. But God knew their hearts and despised what they loved. Thirdly, avoid get-rich-quick investments. Now, I want to change here between business and personal. If your business is, you know, in the market or finances or selling this or that, and, you know, you're dealing with people that do all these things and, and have all these plans and, and broker this, that, and the other, want to make money in real estate, whatever, you know, that's fine. That's your business. But what I'm saying as far as you and your wife and your family and your personal money, this is not something you should strive for. And, and this is not craft talking. This is going to be what Scripture says. First, you need to stick with what you understand. My, a guy used to call my dad all the time when I was a teenager wanting to sell him coffee futures. And my dad knew nothing about coffee futures, and he would always say, well, why don't you buy them? If it's such a good deal, why don't you buy them? He said, well, yeah, well, that's okay, but this is my business. He said, okay. And, uh, you know, and then coffee futures would go way up, and my dad, oh, I should have done, you know, I called them, should have done. And then one day they went just way, way down, and they we're talking about everybody lost their, everything they had and this, that, and the other. He said, well, I guess that's good that I didn't do that. My dad just didn't want to do that. You know, he didn't want to get into that. Because he didn't understand. He didn't understand futures, didn't understand what it was. Now, if you understand all that and that's your life, that's fine. Okay, if that's what you understand. But I can tell you now, I don't. I don't understand. I don't have the, the, the brains to understand that. But Scripture in Proverbs 24, 3 and 4 says, By wisdom the house is built, not by fortune. Wisdom a house is built through understanding your house is established. This is not just the bricks, but this is the, the people, the family, the rules in the house. Your, your whole house is established by understanding. And through knowledge, the rooms are filled with rare and beautiful treasures. So you have to have wisdom, understanding, and knowledge. So if you're going to put your money in something and you don't really understand it, it's like all these people in Europe that bought all our bank, bad loan things bound up with other stuff. Uh, they're, I mean, I can still hear them collapsing right now. Because they trusted in us. They didn't understand what we were doing, but somebody said, just buy this stuff. It's going, it's always been going up. The market will always go up, so just keep buying the market. You know, it depends on short-term, long-term. There's so many different things you have to consider there. So if you don't understand it, don't get into it to get rich quick. In Proverbs 28:19, he who works his land will have abundant food, but the one who chases fantasies will have his fill of poverty. You work the land, it's not glamorous. Now, you can't go to, uh, I remember when my wife worked at Birch Porter and Johnson as a lawyer, we had a free membership to the Radical Club, so naturally we joined, it was free. We went there, and I was sitting around in the steam room listening to some doctors talk. And if you're a doctor, that's fine, but doctors usually don't know a whole lot about investments. They know a lot great about medicine, okay? And I wouldn't ever go to a stockbroker and ask them for medical advice. But they were sitting around talking about this, oh, I, I bought this, and I did this, and puts and calls, and all that, you know, and I realized they knew nothing about what they were talking about. And they put this money in there just so they could tell those stories in the steam room at the racket club. You know, really. And, and I knew a couple, of, and I talked to them later, and they said, yeah, I'm not doing that anymore, you know. Um, but a lot of times we want to do something just to do it. You can't say, yeah, I really, I hoed some weeds today in my land. You know, that's not exciting. And the Lord's way of money and finances is it's boring. What it is, is it's peaceful. You go home, and there's no exciting story to tell, and people go, oh, man, I wish I was like him. You can't have that with the Lord. 
with the Lord. It's, oh man, I, I need some of what you have that the Lord has given you. I need that. I need that peace. You know? And so with the Lord's prosperity becomes peace, not nervousness chewing your nails. Now, some of you, you know, like I represented a bunch of air traffic controllers and air traffic control strike. And, you know, they, they don't live very long. Police officers live on an average 16 years less than normal people. Police officers, because of the stress of their job. And so, but there are some people that are built to take that stress, and that's their job, and that's fine, but not at home. You don't mortgage your house and leverage it to buy a bunch of stuff that may or may not work out at, with your home. You leave your home out of that, and you do that as a business with people's money who are your clients, and you explain to them, and you let them understand what they're doing, and then you do it for them, and the Lord will bless your job. So I'm not talking about your livelihood here as far as what you do with other people's money. I'm talking about at home. If you want a peaceful home, you won't be able to tell the stories. I can't tell financial stories. I can tell some stories about my job, but not financial stories because it's boring and it's steady and it's slowly working through the way it's supposed to work, but not running and gunning. So work in your land. You'll always have food instead of chasing fantasies. This fantasy guy will be telling some stories. Oops, excuse me. Secondly, don't make quick decisions. I'm sorry. I went, I went over just a second. Yeah. Don't make quick decisions. Now, guys like to make quick decisions. I'll go to buy a car with my wife, and I'll want to just close the deal right there. We're deal closers. Same way with getting married. We want to close the deal. Um, you go to uh, shopping. I just want to get out of there. Let's do it, and let's go. She wants to select and think. You know, and we went one time to buy a TV, a big widescreen TV that you always want. We still haven't bought one. It's been three years. We wanted to buy one, and I, I said, this is it, man. This is cheaper. It's on discount. It's on sale. She said, well, let's see what Consumer Reports is. Let's do this. I just, I wanted to close the deal on the TV, you know. We just want to close the deal. And our wives, well, let's think about it. They need to balance this out that way. The plans of the diligence, as Proverbs 28.5, lead to profit as surely as haste leads to poverty. Diligence is profit. Haste is poverty. Also, you want to seek good counsel. If you think, well, you know, man, I'm not going to tell my wife about this because she wouldn't understand it. What you're saying is she's going to say no, so I'm not going to talk to her about it. <laughs> That's what you're saying. If it's the right thing to do, you are one with flesh. You need to talk to her. You need to convince her. And I'll, sometimes I'll want to do something, and I'll convince my wife that, to do it. And when I'm convincing her, I realize I'm not even convincing myself, and I stop doing it. So you need to talk to your wife about it, if, if you can get to understand, if you're married. Or, or someone else, if you're not. You know, like Rollin Wilson, whenever I had a big decision to make, I'd talk to Ron because he's the most spiritual guy I knew. And I'd talk to him about it, and I'd get him to pray about it. Wise counsel. The way of a fool seems right to him, but a wise man listens to advice. We're the worst people about taking advice. If you put 100 guys in a room... They wouldn't say a word to each other unless there was beer and a TV with a game on it. Then they'd start talking. We're, we're communicationally retarded. We, unless we're swapping war stories and running and gunning, we're, we're not talk, we don't ask, like to ask people. We don't like to ask people directions, do we? Well, honey, we'll find it. We're not lost. You know, yeah, we're lost as we can be. Uh, our wives, on the other hand, they'll see each other and they'll run and hug and slobber and mascara all running. How are you? Oh, how, and how do you feel? And, you know, and we don't do that. So you need to ask somebody for some advice. And when you start describing, and they'll say, well, tell me the goods and the bads. When you start describing it, you'll realize that you shouldn't do it just by bouncing off somebody. 
Houses and wealth are inherited from parents, but a prudent wife is from the Lord. Just because your wife disagrees with you, that may be the very reason the Lord married her to you, is so she would slow you down. Fourthly, don't try to avoid working to produce your income. People want to brag, yeah, I didn't have to do anything for that. I got that money and didn't do anything with it. Well, Proverbs 14.23, all hard work brings a profit, but mere talk leads only to poverty. So be, be alarmed. If your money is coming your way and you didn't have to do anything for it, by the sweat of your brow you'll eat your food. If you look at Genesis 3, 17, 18, 19, 20, when Adam and Eve were kicked out of the garden, uh, and I'll just read from verse 16, Genesis 3, 16. To the woman, he said, I'll greatly increase your pains in childbirth. With pain, you'll give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband, and he'll rule over you. And to this day, women's, their pain has involved the children and the family and relationships. You know, that's their, their nest builders. That's their sorrow. They want to stay home with the kids. Guys don't, usually. They want to run and gun. To Adam, he said, because you listen to your wife, I tell my wife that every now and then, Adam was punished because he listened to his wife. Because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you'll eat of it all the days of your life. It'll produce thorns and thistles, and you'll eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food. We have to work. Not that women don't have to work, women that are listening to this talk. They do. But they'd rather usually like to be home with kids, with relationships. We'd like to be there at work. I can't wait to go to work every day. My wife, I say, good morning, sunshine, and she drags herself out of the house. Because I love what I do. Because it's my work. It's, when guys meet, they say, what do you do? When girls meet, they say, how, how, are you, how are you doing? Completely different in the sexes. Laziness. Now, I made a list in your handout of just, I just made a bunch of lazy verses for Proverbs and Ecclesiastes. I went past the field of a sluggard, past the vineyard of somebody that has no sense. Thorns had come up everywhere. The ground was covered with weeds. The stone wall was in ruins. You can go to areas of our city and you can tell who's working and who's not by whether the leaves from two years ago were in the gutters in front of their house. They just won't walk out. And they wonder why they're in poverty. And they won't even clean their house up. I applied my heart to what I observed and learned a lesson from what I saw. A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest. And poverty will come on you like a thief, and scarcity like an armed man. I see those all the time. To understand that. Fifthly, don't be greedy, putting your trust in riches. Those that trust in their riches will fall, but the righteous will thrive like a green leaf. It doesn't say not to be rich. It doesn't say not to be glad to be rich. Just don't put your trust in your money, as a lot of people are finding out these days. You don't trust it because it's fleeting. Proverbs 28, 20, a faithful person will be richly blessed, but one eager to get rich will not go unpunished. You, we can want to grow, but if that's what we're working for is riches instead of the Lord, we're going to be punished. As Jesus was talking about the parable of the sower, and he said that the ones, others like seed sown among thorns, hear the word, but the worries of this life, the deceitfulness of wealth, and the desires for other things come in and choke the word, making it unfruitful. You can see your life choked out. And, and your wife, too. You, you just, you're so concerned about your image and your level in society and what your friends will think when they come over to your house that you would do things that you usually wouldn't want to do, all because you want to look good in other people's eyes instead of doing things with your money so that your children will be blessed, that your children will grow up in a stress-free home and be able to do what they want to do. 
and you want, they won't have debt because there won't be any debt in the home and you'll raise them that way. Those that want to get rich fall into temptation, says 1 Timothy 6, 9 through 10, and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. Now, that doesn't say rich people fall into destruction. It's not wrong to be rich. People that want to get rich, that that's the, they serve money, that's their goal in life, they fall into temptation. For the love of money, not money. Money is not a root of evil. The love of it is. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. And I've talked to a lot of people, a lot of people in this church and other churches. They've fallen into grief because they wandered after the love of money instead of the love of their families and of the Lord. Six, swap financial worry for safety, peace, and prosperity. It's what I'm talking about. Instead of the worries, it's boring but peaceful at home. It's like the petting zoo at the Mid-South Fair. There's a little place that the animals can go where the kids can't get at them. You know, our home is a place we should look forward to going home because that's where we get rest from the world in our struggles. Uh, when I was at the racket club, I would see people go to the bar there and say, well, I'm going to have a couple more drinks before I go home and have to face my wife. And I realized they're stopping off because they don't want to go home just yet because there's so much stress there. They'd rather be at work. If you're in that kind of situation, you need to do something about it. We're not made to be that way. Our home is our place of rest. The blessing of the Lord brings wealth, and He adds no trouble to it. If you get wealth from the Lord the right way, there's not trouble coming with that wealth. Better a little with the fear of the Lord than great wealth with turmoil. Better a meal of vegetables where there's love than a fatted calf with hatred. And I'll be sitting in a really nice house with some people, and they're at each other's throats. And I realize they have a wonderful home, cars, kids going to private school, great clothes. They've got in a china cabinet more little figurines than my entire house is worth. But they have no life at all. They hate each other. Their kids are having problems. That's not what the Lord wants us to be doing. Let's eat vegetables if we have to instead of fatted calves with a bunch of hatred in the home. Better a dry crust with peace and quiet than a house full of feasting with strife. All these in Proverbs. With me, says God, are riches and honor, enduring wealth and prosperity. So there's no problem about prosperity with the Lord. Now, you're not going to bribe God to try to get him to give you money and get into all that. You follow the Lord's principles with your finances, and he'll bless them. My fruit's better than fine gold. What I yield surpasses choice silver. I walk in the way of righteousness along the paths of justice, bestowing a rich inheritance on those who love me and making their treasuries full. We get it from the Lord, and it's a true blessing, and it's true riches. Proverbs also says, Proverbs 38 and 9, Give me neither poverty nor riches, but give me only my daily bread. Otherwise, I may have too much and disown you and say, Who's the Lord? Hey, I don't need God. I don't need the church anymore. I've got plenty of money now. I've made my thing. Or I may become poor and steal and so dishonor the name of my God. So. Now, family finances. I'm going to run through these quickly. Um, know how much you make and spend. Develop a clear picture and a personal plan for your family's finances. If you don't have a financial plan at home that you and your wife adjust frequently and pray for, if you don't know how much you plan next year on spending on vacations, you need to sit down with your wife and your children and decide. 
My little girl came to me once and said, Dad, I want the Disney Channel. I said, well, fine, honey, that's $7.50. Where are we going to take that out of? She said, well, okay, we can take it out of the utility bill. We can, the house note, whatever, you know. And I said, no, honey, you know, wherever you spend somewhere here, you've got to take some, because we only make so much money, and here's our financial plan, and laid it out for her. Let her see. You, you, as your children grow up, uh, let them know what's going on with your finances. Be sure you know the condition of your flocks, says Proverbs 27, 23. Give careful attention to your herds. For riches don't endure forever, and a crown is not secure for all generations. If you don't know how much y'all's family spends on groceries every month, you're not paying attention to your flocks and herds, which are your dollars that the Lord gives you. I'm not saying we need to be little accountants about it, but you need to have plans on how much you're going to spend. Are you setting stuff ahead for retirement? Are you, what about a new car when your car, your car is outside worth less when I, now than when I started talking? You know, when are you going to replace a car? Are you going to borrow money for that car? If so, Why? Why can't you save up money for it? You know, these are different decisions that you have to make. Don't borrow for living expenses or consumer items, number B. The rich rule over the poor, and the borrower is servant to the lender, Proverbs 22.7. In Philippians 4.19, the Lord says, My God will meet all your needs according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. A lot of you, and I was once in that camp, a lot of you... The Lord's given you the money that you need, but you spent it a couple of years ago. And a lot of the money that you need now, you're giving to the credit card companies for stuff that you spent before on stuff the Lord did not want you to have. So when you pull out that plastic and keep balances every month, what you're saying is, I'm not going to trust you, God, and let you help me and control me in my finances. What I'm going to do is, if I need something else that you don't want me to have, I'll just get it from the world. I won't stop with my wife and say, wait a minute, honey. We can't buy that because we don't have the money this month and the Lord hasn't given it to us. Let's pray about why we don't have enough money. Are we spending too much? Are we not making enough? Are we not working hard enough? But instead, you go to Citicorp or Visa, MasterCard, and you say, all right, I'll, I'll just get from them. I won't talk to the Lord about it because I can just go to the world for what happened. You know, Abraham did the same thing. God sent Abraham and his family to the promised land and said, I'll give you this land forever. You'll always be here for generation after generation. And then the next few verses, it said there was a famine in the land. And so Abraham left his promised land because there was a famine. And where did he go? He went to Egypt. He went to the world. Egypt is in Old Testament means our world. He came back later when the, everything was okay again, but he happened to pick up Hagar in Egypt. Just while he was through there, picked up a little Egyptian maid. So then later on, when Sarah was worried about having a child and didn't know, she said, Abraham, why don't you have a child by Hagar? And he didn't think, but about a half a verse, and said, okay. If he had stayed in the promised land in famine and said, God, why do we not? I, I, I don't want to pull out the plastic. I don't want to take out that home equity loan, Lord, even though it's tax deductible. For some reason, we want these things, and you're not giving us the money for them. But I don't want to go to Egypt because I might pick up Hagar and bring her back. And once we started borrowing money, later on, we might make a really wrong decision. But he went to Egypt anyway, and when he came back, and they're fighting right now. Uh, Hagar's children and Sarah's children are fighting and killing each other and killing us. So if you don't have the money and you have to pull out the plastic first, you need to ask the Lord why he decided not to provide for you, as he promised in Philippians 4. Save for future needs and future famine. There will be needs in the future. Your refrigerator will blow up someday. There will be a famine for you. Go to the ant, 
Consider its ways and be wise. It has no commander or overseer. Nobody tells the ant to do this, but it stores its provisions in the summer. It gathers its food. It gathers and stores. Now, if you're going to spend everything you make, plus what you can borrow from your credit cards, you're not going to have any savings. Okay? I mean, it's, we not only spend everything we make and don't store anything up, we also borrow from the world and spend what we don't even have yet so that later on when we get income, we can't store it because we have to pay it to the world. It does not make scripture. Now, you might say, well, everybody does it. That doesn't make it right that everyone does it. Dishonest money dwindles away, but he who gathers money little by little makes it grow. What an investment advice that is. As the insurance guy will tell you, the miracle of compound interest. That's what happens. In the house of the wise are stores of choice food and oil, Proverbs 21.20, but a foolish man devours all that he has. And an even more foolish man devours what the credit card companies will loan him. I'm not saying that you shouldn't have a credit card, but I'm saying if you don't pay it off every month, you're living outside God's will for your life because he didn't give you that money, and you went ahead and spent it anyway. Do you want the Lord to be able to guide you through your finances? If so, you need to follow what the Lord says about finances instead of God and the world and its values. Include your children in the family planning meetings. You don't want them to grow up in bondage to debt. Uh, my kids, the first day of college, there were three or four applications for credit cards in their mailboxes. If you train a child in the way he should go, and when he's old, he will not turn from it. When your child is 11, I'm in 11th grade, have that child pay every bill in your house and run your house finances for a year. Write all the checks, you sign them. Pay all the bills, help with the budget. That way, when they go to college, they won't have a problem with plastic. Otherwise, they'll mortgage their very souls. Honor God with your finances and give to him first and not forget him because he owns it all. All he asks is for a portion of what he has for himself. Are we going to eat the apple and give God the core is the way Adrian Rogers used to put it. Honor the Lord with your wealth with the first fruits of all your crops. The first fruits. So you've got a field out there of wheat, okay? The first tenth you're going to give straight to God before you get the other nine tenths. Now, something might happen. Storms might happen. It may all lay down. It may turn rotten. But first, before anything else, you give God his 10%. But instead, what do we do? We wait to the end of the year and see how much we can give to help us on our taxes, don't we? Our church, in our last two months, gets like a third of our income in the last two months as far as tithes and offerings. Uh, and so I always make sure that the first check, the first bill I pay, the first check I write every month is my check to the Lord. Because we want to give to him off the top before we get everything. It's just a principle saying, Lord, I'm honoring you. I'm not going to wait and see if I have anything left over. Honor the Lord with your wealth, with the first fruits of your crops, and your barns will be filled overflowing, and your vats will brim over with new wine. When the Lord brings, this is from Deuteronomy 6, Lord brings you into the land he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give you the promised land he has for all of us with our finances. A land with large, flourishing cities you didn't build, houses filled with kinds of good things you didn't provide, wells you didn't dig, and vineyards and olive groves you didn't plant. And when you eat and you're satisfied, be careful you don't forget the Lord who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You know, there's a verse, if you go to the end of that chapter in Deuteronomy 6, and I didn't, it's in your material, I didn't put it in the slide. 
It says, you might think, well, gosh, you know, I've made all this wealth myself. And Deuteronomy, the last part of the chapter says, God has given you the ability to make that wealth. He's given you ability. And you might think, I'm running and gunning. I'm earning all this money. It's because God gave you the ability to do it. You remember the fellow in Scripture that said, now I've made all this money and I'm going to build bar grain barns and everything, store all this, I'm set for life. And God said, you fool, tonight you're going to die. You know, I mean... So what's this money going to do for him then? I saw a bumper sticker the other day. I was driving down the street, saw a red Cadillac with a 60-year-old guy in it, about 60. And I, so I always look at the bumper stickers when I see those guys. And work for it was his license plate, WRKF4 and then IT. And the bumper sticker said, the man that dies with the most toys wins. Can you imagine that philosophy of life? But a lot of people have that. Now, finally, know that he'll watch over you and protect you financially if you keep your priorities straight, even in hard times. Keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have because God has said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. So we say with confidence, the Lord is my helper, I'll not be afraid. What can human beings do to me? All of you that are in this crisis right now, wondering if you're going to have a job, what's going to happen to you next week. The Lord is my helper, I won't be afraid. I'm going to run right through and mention uh, this scripture. The blameless spend their days under the Lord's care, and their inheritance will endure forever. In times of disaster, they won't wither. In days of famine, they'll enjoy plenty. The Lord makes firm the steps of those who delight in him. Though they stumble, they will not fall because the Lord upholds them with their hand. This is Psalm 37. If you're in financial trouble, I'd advise you to memorize the entire Psalm 37. I was young and now I'm old. I've never seen the righteous forsaken or their children begging bread. They're always generous and lend freely. Their children will be a blessing. Turn from evil and do good, and you'll dwell in the land forever. Now, I'm going to run through right quick in three minutes these danger signs. I gave you a list in there on the back of your handout with a scripture you can look up if you want. 50% of all first marriages fail. Finances are listed as the leading cause of divorce by a factor of four to one. Now, a lot of times there's adultery, but it's because the guy's working two jobs at the hospital and meets the nurse or the woman is just sick of not having what she wants and the guy comes by uh, his money her money if you're married it's your money both of you it's not one of you keeps a separate account so you can keep separate accounts but not for your money and her money lack of communication you make decisions without talking to your wife she buys large ticket items like window treatments without telling you or hides the credit card bills, which I've discovered when I, well, what about these other cards? We'll get their financial plan again. She says, well, I've got these other cards that I really haven't talked to them about. Unexplained fatigue or loss of intimacy. If y'all just, if you don't feel like getting intimate, it could be because creditors are calling or you're stressed out or you're working too much. You need to assess that. That's a very important part of your marriage. And um, especially if your wife just has no energy, they're stressed. Irresponsibility. You both should be involved in the bills. You cannot abandon your responsibility as a leader in the home, Ephesians 5.23. And she can't be in ignorance of what's going on and not know how much the house note is or this or that or how much y'all are going to plan on this or that. She needs to be there to provide a balance to you. You're not meant to run things on your own. Christ was not meant to be without his bride. You're not meant to be without your bride. The ostrich method. You're just saying, well, let's make that decision next year, honey. 
That's like backing into a garage until you hear your taillights break and then knowing you're in real good. Stop it. It's the ostrich method. Don't use it. If you're putting something off, say, honey, I'm putting something off. Is that all right with you or should we deal with this now? And she'll tell you what to do. The religious excuse, I'm trusting God to provide. I don't need to worry about it. God will just somehow give us this money. There are times to trust God, but you're supposed to be circumspect about it. I know the Lord's understanding, and he'll forgive. So I guy said, well, I can't pay that. I'll, I'll use my tithe money to pay that bill. God will forgive me, but the credit card company won't. No, uh, you have to plan things to where you don't have to worry about that. Let's do it, and the Holy Spirit will tell us if it's wrong. Okay, let's do it first. It's like Andre Ags again. Let's just do it. And lastly, we can't pay the bill because we had to tithe. Okay, God does not want us to defraud our creditors. So if you're going to be an ambassador for Christ, let's pay our bills first, and then let's talk to the Lord about his money. Let's not cheat the world and then say that we're paying homage to God. It's not going to work that way. Overcommitment. We have things, but we destroy our marriages and children in the process. Psalm 127 says, um, Unless the Lord builds the house, its builders build in vain. They labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, they stand guard in vain. In vain you rise early and stay up late, toiling for food to eat, because he grants sleep to those he loves. And then he talks about children being a heritage from the Lord. Children are a reward from God. Like arrows in the hands of a warrior are sons born in one's youth. Blessed is the man whose quiver is full of them. They won't be put to shame. But if you're going to make your work your priority... No, you know, you've heard the saying, nobody died and said, if I just spent, oh, if I just spent just a few more minutes at the office. Nobody says that on the deathbed. They say, I, I wish I'd spent more time with my children. They needed me. And now you're retired and you're ready to spend time with your children. And of course, they're gone and they don't want to spend time with you now. They're having their own financial problems. Indulgence, buying indulgences. You know, if you're really in debt and you're stressed out, just take a vacation on a credit card. You won't have to worry about it for a week. Whoever loves money never has money enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with his income, Ecclesiastes. This too is meaningless. As goods increase, so do those who consume them. I didn't put this in your outline, by the way. The sleep of a laborer is sweet, whether he eats little or much, but the abundance of a rich man permits him no sleep. I've seen a grievous evil under the sun, wealth hoarded to the harm of its owner. Moreover, and now this is the world's wealth, no sleep, worry. Here's the Lord's wealth in that same chapter. Moreover, when God gives a man wealth and possessions and enables him to enjoy them, to accept his lot and be happy in his work, this is a gift from God. He seldom reflects on the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with gladness of heart. We love our jobs. We can't wait to get out of bed. We have a purpose in life. Parental bailouts. Young people, don't take money from your parents uh, if because you realize you'll be obligated to them, you'll have to go over there every Sunday for dinner then, okay? Even though you might want to do something else. And guys, don't give your kids a bunch of money and keep them from having to struggle and go through these trials and tribulations because one of these days you won't be here. I know you want to keep some kind of control of them. I know you do not want them to raise your grandchildren, but they're just going to have to. And you're not going to help them by giving them money when they're living beyond their means. Because, when you're, because their, your grandchildren are going to grow up, they're going to be deeply in debt before they go to college. Working wife who wants to stay home with the kids. A lot of women don't want to go home. That's fine. They want, they, they want to stay at work. They want to have a career. But if your wife wants to stay home with her children, you just agree. Have a budget in case she wants to stop 
and she'll be happy. My wife's had that budget for a long time. She's always worked after the kids reach first grade, but she's always known she could stop if she wants to, and that keeps her at work. So keep that in mind. If mom ain't happy, nobody is happy. No tithe. If you tell me we don't make enough money to tithe, now here's what you need to say. We spend too much money to tithe. I mean, that's what it is. You spend too much money to give God 10%. Um, the less you make, the less the tithe is. So to say, I don't make enough to give God 10% makes absolutely no sense. So realize what it means is the way y'all have decided to live your life with your house, your car, whatever you have, medical bills, whatever, the way you have to live your life, you spend too much money to give God his money. And talk to the Lord about that and work on that. God says we're under a curse because we're robbing me. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. Test me. He says, I double-dog dare you, says God, and see if I won't throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that you won't have room for it. I'll prevent pests from devouring your crops. The vines in your fields won't cast their fruit. I'll bless what you do at your job if you do this for me. And lastly, if your income equals your outgo, huge alarm bells going off. In the house of the wise are stores of choice food. Foolish man devours. If you're spending everything you make, I guarantee you, you're not doing what the Lord wants you to do with your income, especially credit card balances. Now, I've got two voices of comfort for those of y'all that are, may be losing your jobs. Do not, and that, this is my last two verses, and I'm stopping. Don't fear, for I am with you, says the Lord in Isaiah 41.10. Don't be dismayed, for I am your God. I'll strengthen you and help you. I'll uphold you with my righteous right hand. For I am the Lord your God who takes hold of your right hand and says to you, don't fear, I will help you. Remember when you were little kids and your parents held your hand when you crossed the street because you were afraid? I remember when I took my little son to a Halloween, his first little Halloween scary thing when he was five or six. And the first scary thing, he ran and you know, got under my coattails. God is saying this, I'll hold your hand. Don't worry, I'm there for you. And lastly, he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? If you go after money, you will have things for a while with trouble and turmoil. If you go after the Lord's wealth, he not only will give you his son, but he will give you the money with Christ at the same time, working together to bless you and your family. So he's there to help you. Let's pray. Lord, help us all. We're all so different. We all have such different plans for our lives. We come from different backgrounds. And as I struggle with no, learning what you want me to do with the money you allow me to make, and all these men with their different stages of financial bliss or worry, please help us to know that we're, you're there with us. You not only guide us day by day and protect us, but you also give us this guidance in your word. Convict us, Lord. Help us to go home to our families and talk and decide whether or not we're going to live with the world's values, whether or not we're going to live for you and get your blessings. In Jesus' name, amen.